0: My name is Emily. Do I look familiar to you guys? Yeah, some of some of you know me. Okay. Um, so I have spoken here every semester that KU since KU started, and so I remember when I first came, we were in a classroom. I don't know how many of you were there, uh, but it was a classroom with a, was there a chalkboard or something like that? It was so ghetto, you don't even know. I remember speaking, and as I was speaking, I was trying to kick the sound box out of the way because it was echoing. Um, And then the next time I came, it was in, I think, the previous classroom, which was better, but there was some awkward seating. Uh, The seat was set, so when students want to respond or even get out, it was like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And so now to come here and see what a huge sanctuary you guys have and a full praise team. I'm kind of scared what's going to happen when I come next. (laughs) But we'll see. This is actually my last year as an intern pastor, so uh, this is actually my last time speaking for Emmaus as an intern. Yeah. Anyways, let's go on with the word. Uh, Let me pray for us real quick. God, we just thank you for today. And thank you, God, for just inviting me here again to Korea University and to speak. uh, God, here to these amazing students, Uh, I pray, Lord, that you have a word, a rhema word, God, ready um, to be delivered. And I pray, God, that it would really pierce our hearts. God, renew our faith in you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today I want to talk to you guys about a type of people called know-it-alls. Know-it-alls. And the title of this message is Don't Be a Know-it-All. Don't be a know-it-all. Now, how many of you have been in contact with a know-it-all? You know those people that Know everything. You, you, want, you want to say something, and you don't even know if they're thinking or hearing what you're saying because they already know what you're going to say. Now, on a more sobering level, how many of y'all are know-it-alls yourself? Hmm? <laughs> you know, one of my biggest, James' this one, <laughs> one of my biggest pet peeves is actually people that are know-it-alls. Uh, but even though that's the case, I still admit, I found times, honestly, it's countable, uh, but times where I felt I was a know-it-all. At times where the situation, I just had to be right. Even though I wasn't sure about my answer, I just had to be right. Stubbornly holding on to that right answer. Now, I'm not talking about the people where Let's make this clear. Okay? I'm not talking about the people where if you go to them, they happen to be very knowledgeable. You know those, oh, <laughs> you know, there are, there are people, and James may be one of them, but there are people where you go to them, and they just know about everything. They're very experienced. They have a lot of knowledge about many, a diverse array of subjects. There are people that know a lot. But what I'm talking about is the negative connotation of a know-it-all. And more often than not, when we call someone a know-it-all, we're normally referring to the negative connotation. Why? Because we are all people. We are all limited in our knowledge, in our capacity to know. And so to claim that you know everything, obviously you is a know-it-all. Okay? And so synonyms for this. Different words is like, you know, take us back to elementary school. Smarty pants. Um, Smart aleck. Wise guy. Can you guys think of any more? What? Okay. <laughs> See, The problem with know it alls is they're probably the worst type of people to engage in conversation with, right? (laughs) Because no matter what you share, no matter what your opinions are, unless it's the same as the know it alls, they're not going to hear you out. Am I right? your opinions, your ideas, your comments, your suggestions are very likely going to be dismissed. Now, I remember in high school, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I grew up in a non-Christian family. I didn't give my life to God until I was almost a senior in college. And so I went to high school as a non-believer. And I remember um, going to high school and there were debates, debates in class. And And even before I was saved, I was actually always on the Christian team. I was anti-abortion, things like that. But I hated being on their team. You know why? Because back then, I really didn't like Christians because I felt like they were all know-it-alls. I hated the way that they dismissed other people's opinions. I didn't like the fact that they looked down when people had something to say. And so, from that point on, I decided, "Oh man, I don't like Christians. I don't like know-it-alls." Now, the thing is, is as Christians, there is a way, okay, to stand confident in the truth, but not act like a know-it-all. Okay, there, there is a difference between being someone who follows. A God that does know-it-all versus being a know-it-all. See, we follow a God that knows it all, but we don't know it all. Now, I told you that I didn't like know-it-alls then, right? Know-it-alls, they don't just affect the people around you, but even the person that knows it all is highly affected. Uh, if you've ever had any teaching experience, if you ever taught anyone English, we, I know we have some teachers here, you know that the next worst thing than being around a know it all is trying to teach one. Why? Because they have no capacity to learn. Why? Because they are convinced that they already know it all. Now, the problem now, we know the problem with know-it-alls. Now, what's the problem with know-it-alls in the church? See, this is a problem that God deals with all the time. People that he constantly wants to grow in relationship with, people whom he constantly wants to reveal more of himself to, but... They already feel like, oh, I already know it all. And so their relationship with God remains dead. Now, I'm an intern pastor. I told you that I uh, didn't grow up in the church. If you're wondering, what happened was I was walking across the street one day. I got hit by a cab right here. Flew up, head smashed into the windshield flew off about 20 feet, landed on the ground, and right there and then, God encountered me supernaturally. And I heard his audible voice, and about a year later, I found out, oh, I guess that voice must be Jesus. And I gave my life to Christ. Okay, so when people ask me, how did did you encounter the Lord? I tell them, oh, God introduced himself to me. But not growing up in the church, uh, as an intern pastor, they gave me a very difficult assignment. They made me the pastor for a children's ministry in Korea. So our ministry has a Korean ministry. At New Philadelphia Church, there's an overseeing Korean ministry. And they have a children's ministry. So these are Korean kids that don't speak like English. And As a challenge, my pastor sent me there to preach every single week after our Sunday service. Now, the problem wasn't just that I've never had any teaching experience. The problem wasn't that I've never taught little kids. A bigger concern of mine was I had never gone to Sunday school. In fact, a lot of the stories, I don't even know. So I'm trying to learn the stories as best I can and teach it to them but i don't even understand the environment in which a sunday school is like especially a korean one and so i walk in and man is a bunch of little know-it-alls okay if you don't know about the korean church these kids are forced to go to sunday school since they're they can walk and they're just forced to go through these books, and 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 you know sometimes when I try to do something fun, they're like, no, not allowed to have fun. Just teach Genesis. <laughs> I don't. I I I've been. I, I was a pastor there for almost a year. We never got out of the book of Genesis. I'm I'm not even sure if they ever. You know sometimes we'd get Joshua or. But I, I remember if I try to speak on you know New Testament, they'd always. I'd always get approached later and be like, stick to the stories, stick to what they know. And so my biggest concern was teaching these little kids. And when they would open up the book, they were like little monsters. (laughs) I'd be like, okay, now read after me. And they wouldn't even look at the book because they are little know-it-alls. They already memorized everything. And they're like, I was like, so what happened on, they're like, God made the earth. God created man. I'm like, oh! If you don't need this book anymore, then why are you even reading it? And they're like, 네 <laughs> Mari!" you know, like, in Korean. Like that's what I'm saying. And so as I started going in there, I would tell them, you know what? If you don't want to read it, don't read it. And all of a sudden, they were like, what? They started realizing, oh, there's something else to learn about God. What is this? It's so unfamiliar. And then, you know, I remember there was one time where this kid, he, he was sitting there, and, and he was eating his chicken, and then they ha- it's like, I've been there every week. I know the answers, too. They never get past, like, Genesis creation time, right? So he's filling in all the answers. He already memorized it. He doesn't even have to read the sentences. He just fills in all the answers. He's like, Tessa. Like, he's like, I'm done. And I'm like, okay, good job. Eat your chicken. That know-it-alls are children, but actually in the kingdom of God, in God's body, as we grow in relationship with him, we become more susceptible of being know-it-alls. You know, even for me, man, I I thought I would never become a know-it-all, but as I entered ministry, as I entered seminary... (laughs) I could see this creeping up on me. And so we're going to look today, if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to John 3, verses 1 to 10. John 3, 1 through 10. We're going to be talking about a know-it-all named Nicodemus. Um, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, and Pharisees were teachers of the law. And so they knew the law in and out. Not only that, he followed it very strictly. And they didn't associate with anyone that didn't follow the law. And so Nicodemus, the Pharisees, they're known to be know-it-alls. They know about everything. And they look down on people that don't. But there's something a little bit special about Nicodemus. Let me get there. So Nicodemus, what happens is he sees that Jesus is doing some miracles, and he finds out he has some questions. And he's like, "Hmm, maybe I don't know it all." And so he approaches Jesus at night. Uh, read with, or I'll just read, verse three, uh, chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Everyone say Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, "Rabbi." Okay, he. He calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. Clearly, he's already entered a mindset, hmm, I don't know everything. He comes to Jesus by night. Why? Probably because he's supposed to know it all, but he finds out that he probably doesn't. And so he approaches Jesus by night because I don't want all my Pharisee homies to see me approaching Jesus. Okay, so he comes to Jesus. He says, rabbi. We know that you are a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, okay, perplexed, he says this, how can a man be born when he is old? Do you really think that I can jump back into my mother's womb and come out again? Okay, Nicodemus, what does he say to that? He says, "Seriously, how can these things be?" Jesus answered him, "Seriously, come on, you're a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things." Jesus is surprised. I thought you was a know-it-all. Why don't you? Why don't you know these things? Okay. Now, this is. We, later on, we actually see that Nicodemus, he becomes a steadfast follower of Jesus. Through this conversation with Jesus, Nicodemus's life gets transformed. Right when we know it all, when we think that we know it all, God always flips the script on us. He, this is called the subversive function of the Bible. You think you, right when you know it all, God flips everything upside down, takes what you thought you knew, puts it on the top, takes what is on the top, puts it on the bottom, and messes you up. Has this ever happened to you? You're reading. You've read the same passage over and over and over again. You think you know the story so well. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit highlights something. And you're like, what? Has that happened to you? God does this all the time. See when we are first saved, everything is new this this the Word of God is new, and so there's none of this going crazy because everything makes your mind go insane when you begin to read this word as a new believer with the spirit of God in you. I remember when I first began reading the pictures that the Bible paints. I remember sitting in my first uh pre first Sunday service, and the pastor was talking about uh, how it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, and then he uses this crazy, crazy, okay, analogy, and he's like, it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I was like, what? That's crazy, And I didn't know that was in the Bible, actually, because, you know, when you're, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up hearing the word. And so when I would hear things, I just thought it was, I thought the guy was a genius. I was like, ah, that really makes sense. See, if God was just to tell us it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, we can't, it doesn't have any heart, it's hard for us to understand, right? But he always does this. He throws something at you so that immediately you're able to understand. I remember uh, I was in my first uh, kind of like college fellowship group. It was when I was first saved. So as my first year as a Christian, I I joined this college. It's not a college. I don't know what it was. It was just all these Christians got together. And uh, this guy, he tried to encourage the people. So he went up and shared a word. And he, he said, we're like iron that sharpens iron like that. And I was like, that's good. And I was so encouraged by it weeks later i'm reading the bible i'm reading proverbs and i'm like iron sharpens iron i was like, oh my gosh that guy's so prophetic i have to go and encourage him and tell him what he said is in the bible and i head there to my college ministry i'm like yo you check this out what you said the other day i remember you said iron sharpens iron look it's right here and he goes i know i was quoting the scriptures and i was like oh okay See, when we are new believers, everything is new. Everything is eye-opening, jaw-dropping. I remember when I first learned the first metaphor of God being my rock. I was like, dang. Every night before I would go to sleep, I would imagine myself standing on a rock like a superhero, you know, holding the banner of God that says love. And I'd be like, yes, now I can go to sleep. I thought it was an amazing metaphor. I loved it because I never had any stable ground growing up. And so God as my rock became so powerful. And I remember during this time when I felt so alive, I, and, and, and I'd be worshiping God, jumping up and down, and I'd look to my left and I'd look to my right, and all these Christians, old-timers, you know, the, the preacher would say something and they wouldn't even flinch. They're just like sitting there. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to be like them. I'm never going to be like them. God is so amazing. How could he ever die? How could you ever run dry? But about five, six years later, I enter ministry. I enter seminary. And pretty soon, I became one of those people where when I would sit down in church and the pastor would be like, today's word is going to come from John 15, five. And then we turn there, and I read the big caption, right? And it's like, Jesus is the true vine. I'm like, oh, here's another one. Know it all mentality. Know it all mentality infecting the church. Slowly, I began to feel like, oh, man, Jesus. my my, re- How did my relationship with Jesus get so boring? And I began to get very... Frustrated, okay, very frustrated, and and I began to seek the Lord more, and and this I'm going to share with you today a little bit of how I got out of this, and so if you're able to relate to where I am, uh, this is going to be a key message for you. Now, my message for you today is that it doesn't have to be that way, it doesn't have to be that way, it doesn't have to feel dry, it doesn't have to feel dead. You know, you know when you walk by the subway, you go outside of the park, and you see this, like, this old, mad old couple holding hands, and you're always like, oh, and you think, I want to be like that. In your relationship with Jesus, not only are you supposed to get there, but it's supposed to go beyond that, not just 90 to 100 years, but into eternity. And the key is, see, if you were to ask that couple, what keeps you so, you know, lovey dovey? Why do you guys like each other so much? It's just been a hundred years. Most likely, they've come to the revelation that this person that I've decided to marry is unsearchable. That this person forever is going to be intriguing to me. There's always going to be something I can learn about them. There's always something that's going to teach me to learn them better, learn how to love them better. And that's kind of how our relationship with God needs to be. And so how do we get to this point? Okay? The first thing we have to do is we got to not be a know-it-all. We got to understand that there's it's impossible for us to know everything. See if if we the person that we end up marrying we are able to understand that forever this person is unsearchable, how much more the omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing. Okay, that means all-knowing, omniscient. God. Romans 11.33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Time and time again in the Bible, God is spoken of as unsearchable, unknowable, uncontainable. Now, he's unsearchable. But God is a God that continually reveals himself to us. So we know what he's revealed to us, and we continue to know what he's revealing to us. We get little hints, backstage passes as to how he's moving, but we have to admit that his ways are still unsearchable. Thus, it's important for us to acknowledge that although we can examine God, his ways are still unsearchable. Therefore, first thing, we got to know that we can't be a know-it-all. There's no way that we can know everything about this God. But it doesn't end there. We have to also, too, understand that he desires to reveal himself to us. He wants to... I'm scared to go over time because James is time Nazi. But I'm going to share something off script, okay, this revelation here. God is a God that reveals himself to us. If you grew up in the church, you know Exodus 3 about Moses, where he encounters the burning bush, right? And then what does God say to you? He goes, God, who are, who, who are you? And God says, I am who I am, right? This Bible is linear, So what took place up here in the beginning of the Old Testament is time. So when we get to back here, time has gone by. And when we get to the book of John, there's the seven great I am statements. Okay, I am the bread of life. I am this. No longer is it I am dot, dot, dot. But over time, God reveals himself to us. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God reveals himself to us throughout time. And so we have to admit that, yeah, we can't be know-it-alls. We can't know everything. But two, we have to also understand that God desires to reveal himself to us. He desires to be in relationship with us. And hear this, okay? Religion hates this. Religion desires to stick to what they know. What has already been revealed, they are content with. They desire to keep God in a box that is fixed so that at least there's a possibility of me being able to be a know-it-all. This is why sometimes we see when we see religion, it can be so irrelevant. Because they've kind of marked God in this certain period of time. And during that period of time, God did reveal himself. But they're staying to that time of how God was then. But I guess the question, okay, the very reasonable question that these people would ask is, okay, if God is unsearchable, if he's unknowable, if he is uncontainable, then how can we even know him? How can our words even describe him? And to, there's so many ways to know God. But I, today, I'm just going to unpack one. One way okay, that God speaks to us. One way that God renews our faith. And that is through metaphors. Metaphors. Okay? Metaphors are words that have an ability to connect us with something that we cannot experience. For example, if you grew up in America, I'm sorry if you don't know this song. Do you guys know this little kid song that goes, I'm going to sing it for you. It goes, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You know that song? You are my sunshine. It's a metaphor. Sunshine is a metaphor. When they sing that, they're relating whoever the object of their affection is to sunshine. Sunshine, because why? You're able, when you think of sunshine, you think of the warm rays, right? When Especially when it's dark and gray out, it makes you feel good when the sunshine comes out. It connects to your heart. It evokes your emotions. And so even little kids... They sing the song, and they're able to understand, wow, this person's really special. Metaphors are one of the most powerful ways that God speaks to his people. Just when we think we know it all, like Nicodemus, God comes at you with a metaphor that completely messes you up. You have to be like a child. You have to be like a child that is born out of the womb. He's a grown man. He's like, what? But if God didn't say this, how on earth would we even be able to talk about or picture our relationship with God and how we met him? Now, God, he not only introduces himself through metaphors, but he continues to reveal himself and renews himself. Key word, renews himself through metaphors. You guys following? <laughs> There's countless other metaphors in the Bible that God gives us, and it allows us to immediately understand something that can't be understood. So who's God? He's unsearchable. He's uneffable. We cannot. He's uncontainable. How can I even begin to describe him? And so he begins to reveal himself to us throughout the Bible. Isaiah 64, 8. He's the potter with the clay. God is a potter. We understand, right? We understand how a potter molds clay. It helps us understand. God is a shepherd in Psalm 23. We know how shepherds take sweet care of their sheep. God is an eagle in Exodus 19.4 that keeps us safe under his wings. God is an author, author and perfecter of our faith, right? In Hebrews, he writes out the story of our lives. God is a creator in Genesis. Back to Genesis. God is a creator. He creates things out of nothing. We know what a creator does. God is a writer. This is one of my favorites as a preacher. Psalm forty-five, one is one of my favorite verses. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. God is a writer. My tongue is a pen. What I'm speaking right now, allows you to be able to know God. It's another way that you are able to know God. We're not going to talk about that today. But he's the writer. My tongue right now is his pen. What I'm speaking allows each and every single one of you to know God. You know, you guys, Eunice, you guys prophesy here? If you've heard prophecy, if you've heard prophecy, a lot of times, you know, you know she's a powerful pro- she has powerful prophecy. When it goes out, oftentimes, I don't even have to be here to know that it comes out oftentimes in the form of metaphors. She's not just going to tell you you're strong. She's not going to tell you that you're going to get past whatever mountains are in front of you. She's going to say something like this. You are a river, and you're going to keep going down that stream. You're going to be a rushing river. And even if there's rocks in the sides... You're going to go right past it. The water, nothing can stop the water when it's flowing. If she just said, You're powerful, nothing's going to stop you. Thank you. <laughs> but when she says it like that, immediately you can picture it, you understand it, it evokes your heart. You guys understand me? Prophecy, it's memorable and it's practical. Okay, some people are like, That's not biblical. Read the proverbs. That's how it's written to be memorable and practical, not necessarily theological. See, the thing is, religion hates metaphors. If you're uncomfortable in your seat right now, that might be the reason why. Religion hates metaphors, so they stick to hymns. They stick to songs are full of metaphors, right? Right, Johnny? (laughs) Songs are full of metaphors. But religion likes to stick to the same songs. And how many of you know when you listen to a song over and over and over and over again for years and years and years, you just never want to listen to that song again? There's some songs that never die, true, but you're still not going to listen to it. Like, that's what you want to listen to all the time, right? Religion hates new metaphors. And so when God is wanting to grow deeper in relationship with you by releasing new metaphors, religion blocks it off religion wants to note be wants to know it all is content with just one metaphor and that often is a metaphor of an unsearchable god but here's the thing here's the thing we worship one god Not one metaphor. Amen? God continues to want to grow in relationship with us by renewing our metaphors. And if you found that you're feeling dry, if you found that your your prayer language is becoming a little dead, You're starting to pick up on some Christianese that you don't even know what it means. There's a chance that the metaphors in your life have died. See, now this is going to be a little deep. I hope you can follow my mind. This also wasn't in my script. But the power of metaphors, I'm going to try to teach this well. Power of metaphors draws upon dissimilarity. So, Sunshine, how can that be related to a person? Rock, how can that be related to God? Very different things. But the power of metaphors is that it draws upon dissimilarity. It draws two things that are completely unrelatable and relates them. That's the power of metaphors. So, as soon as we begin putting descriptive statements to tie the two, the metaphor begins to lose its power. You guys Follow? Here's a funny story for you. Sometimes we see a lot of metaphors through really cheesy pickup lines. And I remember parking my car, getting out of my car, and this guy comes up to me and he goes, Girl, you is a parking ticket. And I go, Excuse me? He goes, You're a parking ticket. You got fine written all over you. Ugh. But listen, if I allowed that homie to keep explaining his metaphor, the power of that metaphor would have died, okay? On a real note, though, when God, when God connects two things together, as soon as we begin to try to describe it, analyze it, meditate on it, it has the potential of losing its power. It loses that initial effect, And so it's very important for us to allow God to continue to renew our metaphors. Otherwise, we begin getting Christian cliches. In your prayer life begins to die. You start saying, God, you're my rock. You you haven't even thought about what that means anymore. Your relationship with him begins to get dry. Your relationship with community gets to get, get dry. You know, not only, uh, earlier I said that, you know, when we sing sunshine, even kids can understand it. The power of metaphors allows us to even communicate to people that are not saved. Even people that are not Christian, if you speak through metaphors, they're able to relate to you. It transforms a spiritual language into a language that the world can hear. I remember uh, being in a homeless ministry and uh, seeing this guy on the street. And I really wanted to engage in conversation with him. He was drunk. He was sitting there with his beer bottle like this, and and I was like, "How do I talk to this guy? How, God, give me some words. How do I begin to evangelize to him? How do I? I just want to engage in conversation. I don't even want to bring out Christianese. I just want to talk to him." And I remember seeing. I was like, "Oh, what do I say? What do I say?" And 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 I go, "Hey, sir!" And he goes, "Hey!" And as he did this, I saw that he had a tattoo on his arm, and the arm was a sword it was a rock, and then there was a sword jabbed in it, kind of like sword and stone. That's what it reminded me of. And I asked him, hey, what, what does that tattoo mean? He goes, I don't know. I got it when I was drunk one day. And I go, okay. You know what I see when I see that rock? And I go, He goes, what? And I go, you know, like, I have a feeling that you, you, you've you been, you know, I speak my testimony of him. I feel like you haven't been able to walk upon a sturdy foundation. And and And, you know, for me, I had the same thing. And God, there's this there's this guy named Jesus that I know, and he gives me that. He's my rock. And in the Bible, it actually says, I didn't say Bible now. You got to be careful. Jehovah's sneaky. But I said, you know, and also, I, I I know that sometimes the sword, it it's also known as the sword of the spirit, and it symbolizes the word of God. And I just see that word just jabbed into that rock, and I feel like that's your, that's That's something that you've been looking for. And he just began to tear. Metaphors have a power to speak even to unbelievers because it evokes their heart, and it plays and helps them to understand their emotions, their their emotional strings. Um, We need to be actively renewing our metaphors. We need to also allow God to reveal new metaphors. An example of a renewed metaphor, we all know, like, I'm a car, Jesus moves me, right? And I remember when I first read that, or I remember when I first heard that in a preaching, I thought of Jesus as someone who kind of did this to me. You know, and as my relationship grew with him, Carrie Underwood's song came out, Jesus Take the Wheel, and everything started changing. It became more personal. I was like, Jesus, you drive, I'll sit in the passenger seat. And then as I began to enter into a full-time ministry, I was like, God, just open the door. You take the wheel. And then all of a sudden, my pastor speaks to me and renews my metaphor. And he goes, Jesus can't, can't, can't drive a parked vehicle. And I was like, oh, another level of free will. Oh, you know, we got to change the shift. Shift the gear. <laughs> Renewing our metaphors. Allowing God to reveal things to us through metaphor. Okay. I remember one, another story. You guys okay for one last story before I close? One last story. I remember when, um, I went to a new Philly retreat, kind of when I would like, like shine, right? See, to shine, God is her, uh, deliverer. It's a metaphor, you know? Um, but I remember I was at a New Philly retreat uh, back in the day, my first year as an intern pastor. And I remember I began to shake under the spirit of God. And there was an altar call for China. I'm Chinese. There was an altar call for China. I don't necessarily have a heart for China. But I was like, they're praying for Chinese. I might as well go up. I go up. All of a sudden, if you were there, you know. I started screaming, shaking. And I began to scream, "Awaken! awaken, awaken, awaken. To the top of my lungs, it was like a shrill. And I had no idea what that meant. But months, I think almost a year later, that same preacher that prayed for me, he came by again. He's from the States. He came by again, and he preached a message called Prophetic Roosters. And I was like, that's weird. Okay, you can call me an eagle. You can call me a verb. I don't know about rooster. And as he began to speak, he was like, roosters understand the time and day. They know that when they see the bright morning star, it's time to tell the people that are in slumber, wake up, wake up, wake up. And immediately I was like, I'm a rooster. (laughs) I remembered. And this sleeping giant called China needed a prophetic messenger, a prophetic rooster to begin to scream, awaken, awaken from your slumber. Jesus is risen. Metaphors are not restricted to just the Bible. Ouch. If you got a little religious bone in you. This is their fear. See, God, he penetrates our everyday life. He can speak to us in our daily lives. And if we even try to restrict him, Now, God speaks powerfully through the Bible. I told you that there's nothing that this book can't answer. But if we even try to restrict him to just speaking through this, we're already forming him in a way where there is a possibility, a very difficult possibility of us knowing it all. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to invite up Johnny. Um, God has not called us to be know-it-alls, okay? He hasn't. We serve a God that knows it all, but he hasn't called us to be know-it-alls. For some of you, this is very relieving because you've been feeling like, I don't know, but I feel like I got to know. For some of you, it may feel constricting. I don't know about this. I feel like I should be able to know more. But the thing is, is God really, when it comes down to it, he's the only one that knows it all. And metaphors is a way that God speaks to his people. He's constantly reviving and renewing who he is through metaphors so that we can know him more. So I'm going to invite up all our altar ministers right now.